This is a podcast brought to you by the team behind the Pharmaceutical Journal. Through this channel, we hope to keep you one step ahead of developments in pharmacy, medicines and the pharmaceutical sciences. I'm Executive Editor Nigel Prates, and this episode is presented by myself and Careers Editor Angela Cam. This is part two of our special feature podcast on the M-Farm awarding gap, which was born out of our PJ Mind the Gap campaign on inequalities in pharmacy. If you haven't heard that first podcast, we advise you to go and find it on our homepage. In that first part, we wanted to give Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic or BAME pharmacy students room to voice their first-hand experiences of university life. And there were a handful of concerns that they all shared. First and foremost amongst the students was the issue of representation. When we were introduced to most of the faculty, really, you could literally see them lined up and it was mostly white, mostly male. And I think that image kind of stuck in my head for first year, at least. It does make you feel as though black individuals are not good enough to be in the spaces where they are the ones passing on knowledge so you're kind of wondering are these just the best people that have ended up here and if this is what the best is then why is that i wouldn't say i pick an ethnic minority person to approach but it does make me feel comfortable that there are ethnic minority teachers and lecturers there there are also concerns that a BAME background makes it harder to get good grades and they seem to want more transparency around the awarding gap from pharmacy schools. I do not think that there's enough visibility in regards to the awarding gap. It's definitely not something that's talked about on the course. and It's mainly limited to either BAME groups or select members of staff who work in diversity and inclusion in, within universities who really make it their goal to try and tackle this, you don't see a uni-wide approach to say, hey, we really need to do something about this. Well, thankfully, there are UK pharmacy schools working hard to tackle this issue. The General Pharmaceutical Council are set to tighten up the standards that schools must adhere to, and there are experts outside of pharmacy with a wealth of knowledge in what works and what doesn't. And in this episode, you'll hear from all three of them. And we start with two pharmacy schools, Reading and Wolverhampton. We can start when you are. Uh, Let's go. Who were kind enough to talk to us about their efforts, what they found challenging and what seemed to be making a difference. Katrina Bicknell is head of the School of Pharmacy at the University of Reading. I am currently the university's uh, lead on differential outcomes. So yes, I am involved in the work that we're doing both as a university, but also as a pharmacy school in this area. Reading School of Pharmacy has a gap of 22 percentage points in the awarding of higher class degrees in favour of white students, but has managed to narrow this over the past few years. So the ethnic makeup of students at the Reading School of Pharmacy is a little bit unusual compared to other cohorts within the university's program portfolio in the fact that we have between 80 and 86% of students from a BAME background. And what is the ethnic makeup of the faculty at the School of Pharmacy? If I was to estimate, it's between 25 to 30% from a BAME 
ethnic group. Wolverhampton School of Pharmacy was the other university we spoke to. Unusually, they have an awarding gap which is five percentage points in favour of BAME students. Here's Principal Lecturer and Pharmacist, Alan Hindle. At Wolverhampton, we currently have a, a negative awarding gap for BAME students, which means that our students from black and minority ethnic backgrounds have a slightly higher chance of securing a first or 2-1 degree. The faculty at Wolverhampton are roughly 50-50 in terms of BAME versus white staff. So two very different pharmacy schools with different ethnic makeups among staff and students and different awarding gaps, but both taking the issue seriously and making progress. We wanted to know how they'd been tackling the issue at their own universities and what they'd found challenging. Obviously, first of all, we've got very good data with relation to the awarding gap. We've done quite a lot of research over the last 10 years, been involved in various research groups, higher education academy funded projects that the university has done uh, in conjunction with other universities to research the awarding gap. So it's been quite a, quite a long time really. It was something that the university was interested in and pharmacy volunteered to take part in that initiative that was led by the university and yes it was identified that we did have an attainment gap. Um, so since 2013 we've narrowed our awarding gap by 5% which is progress but I think some would say that it is slow progress but I'm very optimistic that we can make a real difference sort of going forward. Having spoken to several BAME students about their experiences and read around the issue more widely, one suggestion that's often mentioned is making the curriculum more suitable for diverse students. I put that to Katrina. If you have read into this area, you'll see lots of students calling for decolonisation of the curriculum. And of course, a pharmacy curriculum it's not as straightforward as that because there are certain things that we need to cover and it's not necessarily linked to a student's background. But um, since 2013, we've taken it very seriously to ensure that our curriculum tailors for all, if studying at Reading. The, the things we put into place ranged from ensuring that the assessments that we were setting were varied, we don't have a heavy reliance on high stakes written examinations, for example. We offer varied assessments. We're very careful about the timing of assessments. In 2018, we also underwent another review of our curriculum with a specific stream looking at diversity and inclusion. And what did that find? At that stage, we started to talk more with our students about what they would like. So our initial uh, review of our curriculum looked at the things that w we felt <laughs> would solve the problem. More recently, we've talked to students about what they feel would support their learning. We probably should have started there in the first place, to be honest with you, but we're getting there. So little things like when we, we teach our students about skin disorders, for many years, we just showed a really red rash on white skin. And of course, 
on skins of different colours, rashes look different. So we've changed that very recently. We also have inclusive curriculum design included within the training requirements for course leaders and people who are developing courses to, to be validated in the university. So all of these things are important to ensure that we have a, a, a curriculum that is representative of the UK picture. Ellen told me that it wasn't just the content of the curriculum that they changed, but it was how it was taught. So we pay particular attention to active learning styles and collaborative learning. We undertake different types of teaching, uh, including what we call team-based learning and case-based learning. So these are methodologies which are inquiry-based in their nature. When we use inquiry-based learning, we actually shift the classroom approach so that the students assimilate the materials outside of the classroom time and they focus during the class time on developing their collaborative learning skills, their soft and employability skills, teamworking, communication, problem solving, etc., and applying the materials and gaining a lot of feedback. It's predominantly small group teaching and we like to ensure that our groups are representative and diverse and reflect the diversity of the student body uh, on our pharmacy course. As you'll remember from part one and some of the clips at the top of this episode, many students made clear their desire to see a more representative faculty, saying that they would find it easier to ask for help from staff that they could relate to. Changing the staff in any academic department takes time. You can't just snap your fingers and, and diversify the faculty. It's a, a, a slow-burning solution and we need to encourage more applications from BAME pharmacists wanting to come and teach in academia. Why do you think the number of individuals from a BAME background in research is so few? I would like to say that I have the answers for that but unfortunately it seems that there is not equal representation of BAME and white PhD students entering academia. There are no secrets that being a postdoctoral researcher is tough. Um, you're working on short-term, fixed-term contracts. There's lots of pressure to achieve, to publish. And for some reason, BAME students are le less represented. And how do you plan to encourage more BAME applicants? At Reading, we try to encourage BAME applications through our networks. We encourage our colleagues in clinical practice to, to join us. And of course, we're working very hard to make sure that our recruitment processes do not stand in the way of us appointing suitably qualified BAME candidates who apply. What changes have you made to your recruitment processes to allow for this? So all staff have mandatory training about recruitment and the importance of diversity and inclusion. Shortlisting is led by a chair who, again, has training 
to ensure that there is no bias entering the process. So while it's clear Ellen and Katrina are making huge efforts to address these issues behind the scenes, I wanted to ask whether warding gap data should be brought out into the open to motivate all pharmacy schools to try harder. I think that we would be open to doing that, but I think we need to carefully consider how best to compare across the sector. So at Reading, we've commissioned a data analysis twice now since finding out about our gap. And it's clear that the issue is more complicated than just someone's ethnicity and what award they get at the end. There are lots of things that also need to be considered. For example, our analysis has shown that students joining us with BTEC qualifications are less likely to achieve a 2-1 or a 1st than those that are joining us with A-level exam results. And unfortunately, more BAME students come to us with BTEC qualifications. So that's another barrier that they have to overcome. So we've got to be a little bit careful about looking at the raw data because it's really complicated. And Alan seemed to agree that more context is needed when publishing these sorts of data. One has to just be cautious of looking at hard data and figures. There's got to be a context to go with it. I think it's important that we recognise our students who predominantly are coming from the local area. We're in an area which is one of the more socio-economically deprived areas of the country. And there are issues around schools and colleges who may not be the best performing schools and colleges and it's important that uh, we recognize that students come to us with a range you know layers of disadvantage in terms of their experiences which can have an impact on their studies. Reducing the awarding gap is no longer just a matter of doing the right thing. The government regulator, the Office for Students, has challenged all universities to eliminate their ethnicity awarding gaps by 2025, not long at all. And as part of this, from this year, universities can only charge higher fees if they have an approved plan to help support underrepresented students. Access and participation plans will have a, a direct influence on university funding if uh, universities aren't able to adequately demonstrate that they actually have a, a, an appropriate strategy in place. So obviously it's something that universities take very seriously. Our access and participation plan, we've set very, very tough targets to meet. So uh, we've said that at Reading, we want to reduce our attainment gap to 5% in the next five years. So. We've got a fair bit of hard work ahead of us, but um, something that we're taking very seriously, both as a university and as a school of pharmacy. On top of this, pharmacy schools will soon have another incentive to fix their ethnicity awarding gaps. The GPHC is set to introduce new standards on equality and inclusion next year. I spoke to Director of Education and Standards, Mark Vos, about what the pharmacy regulator is aiming to achieve. What would happen if a university is seen to be failing on, on the equality and diversity standards? 
We would normally um, have a situation where particular conditions are applied to their accreditation, which they would then need to meet in order to carry on. And that has been done. Um, it doesn't happen that often because most universities are generally meeting standards. But where they are falling down, that's how we would actually take the regulatory action to make sure standards are met and students are, are receiving the quality and standard that they would expect. So that could go as far as them not being accredited for the next academic year? Ultimately, it's possible that that sort of situation can happen. Our experience is that where issues are identified, universities are very keen to work very constructively and quickly with us to make sure any gaps are addressed as quickly as possible. Do you think that you should be, as a regulator, mandating that universities publish data on their ethnicity awarding gap? One of the things we're looking to do is for universities to have more information that they are routinely collecting around this. We're thinking in particular, for example, of making sure that they are very clearly monitoring the sort of progress of, of students right the way across the piece. And that applies not just in relation to um, issues around ethnicity, but also more generally, perhaps, for people who are who are not perhaps achieving uh, what they are expected to do initially, to make sure they're aware of that. Uh, and therefore, that provides a good basis of information that they can act on and we can obviously check and assure through our accreditation approach. Just to be clear, you're not, you're not saying you would mandate it? I think we, we're very keen to make sure that university does achieve outcomes. Specifying exact pieces of documentation that university should publish is probably a level of detail that would get us into, into more difficult areas because I could probably quite easily think of any number of things that would be helpful to sort of say could be published. So I think what we want to do is to make sure that the standard that we are expecting is very clear in relation to this area, that universities are collecting information on this. We would certainly look to them to be as open, certainly with their own students and more widely as possible. But we would think a bit more carefully, I think, about where we mandate a particular publication of certain pieces of information. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Pharmaceutical Journal, the official journal of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. You can join today for the equivalent of 60 pence a day. Search RPS membership to find out more. It was great to hear that the two pharmacy schools and the GPHC have been concentrating on this issue. But this isn't just an issue for pharmacy undergraduate degrees, of course. Angela, you've been speaking with an expert outside of pharmacy. Tell us more. Yeah, that's right. I spoke to an academic called Nona Macduff, and it was great, actually, because she's got years of experience researching this very issue. And she even has an OBE for her work in this area. An OBE for fixing awarding gaps that's amazing yeah it was really great to speak to someone so knowledgeable about practical ways to actually close the awarding gap and where does she work now so she's actually vice pro chancellor at solent university presumably continuing her work closing gaps yeah no she's still very interested and invested in this area i i'm so honored because i was given a an obe for my services to diversity and when, you know, I said to my dad, you know, oh, you know, it's an Order of British Empire type excellence award. And how did he feel about that? And he was like, no, God, we, you know, he remembers the British Raj. And he was like, no, take it. It's part of getting back. So I, I was really honoured to, to, to get the award for, for really being quite bolshy. And can you briefly describe your research into closing the awarding gap and what you found? My research into closing the awarding gap really identified that um, universities have a large awarding gap and that gap has been there historically and in the 10 years I've worked in this field, over 10 years, um, the gap has been persistent. 
when students come into the university on equal par with their, their white counterparts, when they come out the other end, there is a large awarding gap, which is unexplainable. And that is because when you control for all factors, such as demographic factors, age, disability, gender, as well as ethnicity, and non-demographic factors such as subjects of study, you can see that there is an unexplained gap in the proportion of white students who get a first and two one and the proportion of students of colour who get a first and two one. Nonna's research and other research out there suggests that the student deficit model approaches this problem from the wrong angle, looking at the student as being the problem as opposed to the processes and structures they experience at university. And when you look at some of the data, particularly the data that's being produced by the Office for Students, you will see that through large-scale studies, the data is demonstrating that there isn't a problem with the students. It's actually a problem with the institutions and life as students experience it through, throughout the three years of their study on, on undergraduate programmes. So therefore, using the term student deficit is actually incorrect because the data is demonstrating that the uh, converse is true. So do you think we can... There's an interesting contradiction there, isn't there? Because the pharmacy schools earlier seem to suggest that the grades on admission did influence the final class of degree that the student might end up with. What, what's the truth here? Yeah, that is true. But there is also research out there that says all things being equal, something about the institution can still create these awarding gaps. And that was backed up by the experiences that BAME pharmacy students have relayed to me. So it's clearly important for schools to consider these factors. And Nonna was clear that just focusing on the students themselves might be missing the bigger picture. I think that what we can say is that universities have a major role to play in terms of the awarding gap. I think there are external factors and institutions have to understand what are the external factors that they cannot control, but also understand the really important and significant role they do play in the awarding gap. So I would ask every institution to reflect on the contribution that they are making to improving those institutional processes, improving the knowledge and skills of their staff and to better supporting students of colour. I wanted to know what Nonna, with her strong record, thought were the key principles behind effectively dismantling awarding gaps. I've always, my approach has been to look at institutional experience in three different groups. Firstly, is, as I keep saying, is institutional processes. And some of the strategies around improving those could be to actually take the plunge and create a KPI at board level on the attainment gap. Now, why is that important? Because as universities face financial difficulties, all the KPIs will remain as a priority to an institution, irrespective of the things that are being thrown at it. So that's important. The vice chancellor's group must have absolute oversight of the work that goes on to improve the attainment gap. And thirdly, I think what we need to do is I talked about the importance of having quality assurance and equality. So for me, unless equality 
is embedded within the metrics we use to evaluate the quality of our course, we will always be using small steps to, to reduce the gap. That way, you're, what you're doing is starting to build into the fabric of the university um, the notion that equality is critical to its business purpose. In terms of improving processes and, and thinking about why, you know, narratives like why isn't my professor black, um, what we've got to do is also promote those who are of uh, white backgrounds to consider diversity as important. And they will do that if it's part and parcel of the recruitment and promotion processes. And therefore, what they're saying is to work here, to work in this institution, to be promoted, you have to have a commitment to diversity and we will be testing you on that. And how important is it for institutions to engage with their students, their minority ethnic students, when developing these initiatives? I always have the mantra, if it's for me, it's with me. So therefore, you've got to invite those students to co-create rather than participate. So co-creation means from the beginning and participation means, oh, here's what I've done, what do you think about it? If you're inviting students at the end, you've almost silenced or muffled them because then um, you're so far wedded to the process and so far down the line, it's very difficult to challenge without people becoming defensive. And it's very difficult for a student to um, challenge when they know it's at such a late stage. So co-creation from the beginning is critical with people of colour. Again, if it's for me, it's with me. And so we've spoken to some minority ethnic pharmacy students previously, and they mentioned that having tutors and professors which they can relate to is very important to foster a sense of belonging and for them to have role models, visible role models. But how easy is it actually for institutions to diversify their faculties? I don't think it's as hard as people are making out it to be. And I think a lot is written in the job description that kind of alienates people who would want to apply because there is something that isn't inviting about them. Now, in terms of gender equality, that, that was noticed years back, that the words had to attract female applicants. But also, um, I think what's really important to recognise is that our pipeline is considerably narrowed because of the awarding gap. We grow our own workforce and therefore if fewer students of colour, fewer particularly black students are being awarded a first or two one, they're less likely to do a master's, they're less likely to get PhD funding and therefore they're less likely to go into um, academia. It's almost a vicious cycle where a lack of diversity in teaching staff in pharmacy schools mean people are less likely to apply for jobs there. And then the BAME students who are studying at that school will, be the, will not see the visible role models who look like them and then themselves will be less likely to go on and become academics at an institution. So it's, it's really quite a deep-rooted problem. Mm, and that is the part of the system that needs to be broken in pharmacy schools. Um, and as Nonna said, it needs to come from the top. You need to have the budget holders in the room making the decisions. And there needs to be clear performance objectives that schools are held to. 
playing devil's advocate, the argument that's leveled against all uh, these type of initiatives is that you're asking for special treatment for ethnic minorities and that actually the white majority will suffer as a result. Is that a fair description of what Nonna is talking about here? I mean, that is a common argument. But what Nonna is saying is that if you are tackling these issues, um, what will happen is you're improving results overall. You can bring up universities in the league tables and it improves the situation for the entire university. So essentially she's saying it's levelling up, not down. And if, say, I was a pharmacy student and I wanted to tackle this issue at the school I was studying at, how would I go about that? So what I would recommend to students is to actually go back and look at our investigation into the awarding gap and see what the current awarding gap is at their particular school for different ethnicities. How does their awarding gap compare with other schools and the national average? And is there a campaign that is already running in the university that they can join? What Nonna said at the end of our interview is that students have a lot more power to bring about change than they actually realise. I think that students should work with their students' union and really be very demanding about how institutions address inequalities. I also think that it's really important to have campaigns around raising awareness amongst other students and I think that's what you've got to do is to have confidence that this is a legitimate agenda that the Office for Students has thought so important that they've made it a top priority, one of the key priorities in the access and participation plan that all institutions have to provide. It is the in the NUS manifesto um, in terms of equality so students you have so much power you probably don't realise it though and be very confident in knowing that there is a whole sector ambition around reducing the BAME awarding gap. I don't know about you Ange but it sounds like there's some really good ideas that individual pharmacy schools have and Nonna came up with some really good things that could be applied by different universities but it sounds like the sector as a whole hasn't quite caught up with this yet. Yes, I think what you said is fair, um, but it's not just a sector-wide approach. It's a whole, it's the whole pharmacy profession that needs to sit up and take a look at this issue because there will be far-reaching effects for the whole profession if we don't address the ethnicity awarding gap. And so while we have received positive feedback on our investigation, we will be continuing to follow this issue over the coming years. But at least you get the impression that this is an issue that can be tackled. It's not something that's baked into the system, that it is possible to do something about this as an issue. Yeah, we have heard a lot of really good ideas in this podcast that other schools of pharmacy can take on board if they wanted to. And that is cause for being positive. Anyway, I would like to thank Ellen, Katrina, Mark and Nonna for taking the time to speak with us. Indeed. That's it for this podcast. Do follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts when you get the chance. Thank you for listening.